Good morning. My name is Danielle Morrow, and I'm a member here of Redemption Church. And I will be reading today's scripture, which is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word for us today. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we can come together and share in it and that you can grow us and change us. And that is what we ask today, that as we, as we share in this together, that we would know you more deeply and love you more strongly and that you would grow us and change us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, many of you should know me. If you do not know me, my name is Scott. Uh, last name's Strubing. And I'm an elder candidate here at Redemption Church. And I am very thankful to be sharing the word with you today. One day, I intend to have slides for you in the future if I get to preach again. But um, today is not that day. So you get to hear a lot of what's going on, but you won't get to see anything up there. But don't you worry at all, because I'm a very active preacher with hand motions and walking and all kinds of stuff. So you don't have to worry about not seeing anything at all. I wanted to start this morning by talking about something that I considered myself an expert in for a number of years. For a long time in my life, I would, I would just live with this thing. And I thought, man, I am at the top when it comes to these items. Then I met Lucas Gallagher, and I realized, nope, no, I don't got it. I don't got it. And it's Legos. It's Legos. For a long time, Legos were central to my personality, probably longer than I would like to admit, but it's safe too now as an adult and as I'm married and don't have to worry about scaring women away. Um, <laughs> with Legos, I played with them all the time as a kid with my brothers. I have two older brothers, one 11 years older, another six years older, and we shared in Legos constantly. If it's a random night, you dump out the Legos. That's right, dump. This ain't no working out a bins thing. You get a blanket down, you let them all fall out so you can pick through them one by one. If you're watching a movie, dump out the Legos. 
Dinner's over, dump out the Legos. Homesick, bored, dump out the Legos. Sad, happy, gassy, frightened, just dump out the Legos, take them out and play with them. And in my expertise, I thought I knew everything about Lego usage, taking them apart, putting them together. And my daughter puts me to shame. She comes out and she immediately gets into Legos and she has figured things out that I, couldn't, I could have never imagined. I could have never imagined. And namely, it comes to taking them apart. Something like this would have startled young Scott. If you had seven-year-old Scott and he had an item like this, a base plate and one piece attached to it, he would have said, all right, let's crack the knuckles, stretch a little bit, and he would start to go at it with his fingernails. You couldn't clip your fingernails all the way because if you did, you wouldn't have a thing to work at. He's nodding. He knows exactly what this life is about. <laughs> you can't get in there. And I wouldn't tell my parents this, and I wouldn't suggest this to the children in teaching downstairs, but I will tell you, one of my other secrets was teeth. Oh. <laughs> teeth were a fantastic tool at seven years old. Now, I might have broken the sealant on one of my molars and almost nearly fractured a molar in the process, but teeth would get the job done. But now they have something marvelous. A Lego separator. Now, I think this existed in 1992, but it was for the rich people who had the collections and things like that, and us little poverty-stricken strubings that just had lots of Legos had no way of purchasing a Lego separator. Also, that's the name of it. What, what were they thinking? There was all kinds of opportunity to call this a Glurgenslew or something else that Ikea would do now. But instead, Sadie just takes a Lego separator. Now, this is, this is the moment of truth. Let's just be clear. Nine times out of 10, I failed at this last night. So we're gonna find out if this works. You just take the Lego separator, you put it right on there, and boom, it comes apart. Whereas I would have been working, thank you for the applause, Tyler. <laughs> I would have been working at that, breaking teeth and breaking my own heart for a long time. You see, I was approaching a good thing, a right thing, the wrong way with the wrong tool, not even knowing that the right tool existed. And in today's text, we see Jesus speaking to those who are approaching the right thing in the wrong way, with the wrong tools and the wrong mindset, until Jesus comes and shows them something beautiful, something better than just a little thingamajig another name for it that could have been great, that would have let me properly handle it. Jesus is showing them, the crowd, how to properly handle the right thing today. Today we are with Jesus as he continues in the Sermon on the Mount. And what becomes clear in this text today is that questions are being asked of Jesus that there are questions about his behavior, about his lifestyle, about his teaching that people want answers to, and Jesus is not shy. He is not shy at all, and he will answer those questions. And specifically, his question, the questions that are coming to him is about how he is using the law, and specifically, what his position is toward the law. 
thankfully. Jesus, Jesus doesn't just give us his position on the law. He gives us his position in the law, on the law, and over the law. I'm just now realizing I haven't set myself a timer, and I am bad at keeping time in a sermon. So, get that out there. Okay. Jesus gives us his position once more. On the law, sorry, gives us his position in the law, on the law, and over the law. So what is his position? We're going to start in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus' position in the law. First, it is important to note that when Jesus speaks of the law and the prophets, he is not just using a throwaway line to talk about rules and regulations that the people are keeping to. He is referring to the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures. What is at stake with this question for Jesus is how he feels about God's word. When they're looking at his behavior, when they're looking at his interactions with people, when they're looking at him loving strangers and aliens, when they're looking at what Jesus is doing, what is at stake is the word of God. And so he says straight from the gate, do not think that I have come to abolish them. Abolishing would have meant their end. But his behavior and teaching was in no way, in no way, a hint or a demonstration of their end. In fact, it was the complete opposite. It revealed the law and the prophets, for he was in fact in them. So now Jesus, in his life, his behavior, and his teaching, he is revealing something greater. Specifically, he is telling them that he has come to fulfill them. Now that would be a startling phrase for the people to hear. I just want you to think for a moment of the audiences of this. I want to I bring this to mind. You have essentially three audiences that are receiving a word like this. You have Jesus' audience in the Sermon on the Mount that day which would have been made up of Jewish people. It would have been made up of, very, of ethnic Jews. It would have been made up of Hellenistic Jews, which were Greek converts that had gone all the way into becoming as Jewish as they could be. It would have been full of Romans. It would have been full of Gentiles. It would have been full of hearers and scribes and Pharisees, a big assortment. But not only is there that audience, there is Matthew's audience because Matthew has taken the Sermon on the Mount, so that the early church could hear this. And so that audience is also hearing this text. And that is built up of now Jewish believers and Gentile believers, and again, Hellenistic Jews that are believing, and just general guests and the company that they would keep so that they could hear from Jesus. And today, as we have, as the church over the years, we are hearing from it again hearing what God has to say. And Jesus specifically is telling all of these audiences that he is not abolishing the law. Rather, he is fulfilling them. What does that even mean? 
there is a, a favorite commentary of many people that I just went to because it's easier. I'm not an expert on this. So I went to the help of Matthew Henry, an old Puritan. He writes a great commentary. If you need an all-purpose commentary to keep in digital or massive tome, like let's just be clear, the thing's this thick. If you need a commentary to help you through the Bible, Matthew Henry is a great one to have. And he gives five ways that Jesus fulfills the law. First, he fulfills the law by obeying the commands of the law. For he was made under the law since he incarnated into our flesh. Two, he would fulfill the law by making good the promises of the law. Note, it's not just about the rules and regulations. It's about the promises that existed in the whole of the Hebrew Bible. He would take those promises and he would take the predictions of the prophets and he would make them good because they bore witness to him. Not only that, he would fulfill them by being the answer to the types of the law. He would not make void the ceremonial and civil laws, but he would make them good and manifest himself to be the substance of all those shadows. Fourth, he would fulfill the law by filling up the defects of it and the shortcomings of it, and so to complete it and perfect it. And lastly, number five, he would fulfill the law by carrying on the same design of the law. He goes on to say that the gospel is the time of reformation, not the repeal of the law, but the amendment of it, and consequently its establishment. By saying these things, Jesus is clarifying that he is not just another teacher with a perspective of the law like they had been experiencing he was everything the law and prophets were speaking of and would fulfill it by obeying it, by being the answer to it, by revealing the reality of the shadows it hinted at, and by taking what it was, healing it, and bearing out its beautiful realities to the whole of our lives as the church. Now that he is in the law, he goes on to clarify his position on the law and its fulfillment by speaking of its durability. Verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What will happen with the law? It must persist until all is accomplished. Why must it persist? Why, why must the law continue in this way? One can simply look at the presence and curse of sin and the curse of the fall to know why. The brokenness of the world is not something that goes unnoticed by the rest of the world. We speak about it here at church. We speak about it with our friends and family. That Not only that, I speak about it with my coworkers. Many people who do not desire to even know God look at the world around them and recognize and see how broken it is, not only in the sins being accomplished, but the fact that things are not right within their own bodies with sickness and disease. And if one were to take the law and not 
teach what is needed by the world and what is condemned by God in the face of such great need would be the worst kind of evil. But the purpose of the law was greater than just condemning sin. It was about revealing the lawgiver. There's several books that I read in preparation for this sermon because we're, there's a lot going on in this text. And one of them is an old book that was written about the Puritans and how the Puritans approach the law. And usually what people think of when they think of the Puritans is they think of horrible plays and books that were written to make fun of the Puritans. But the reality is the Puritans were often very doctrinally minded. And they would often live in such a way that would be contrary to what has been presented in a mocking way. So he writes, this, this author, Ernest Kivon, in The Grace of the Law, writes about the law, and he says, every departure from the law of God is an affront to the glory of God. And no sin may ever be called small. The greatness of Adam's sin, as of every other transgression, must be measured not by what it is in itself, but by the offense it containeth against God's majesty. He later continues, the law is thus the glorious expression of the glory of God insofar as that glory is to be realized by the creatures whom he has made in his own image. You see what, what he's saying is that the law's persistence is not about the law at all. It's not about the rules and things that are right there. The law and the prophet's persistence is about the righteousness of God being revealed to the world and that the world needs to see that righteousness and needs it demonstrated because the world is longing for that righteousness. And here, this righteousness has come through Christ embodying it. So when will the law end? Well, Jesus says, it will not end, it will not pass until all is accomplished. Well, when will that be? That will be, that will occur when we behold his glory and righteousness in utter fullness. When we see him, we are at home with him in utter perfection, in all the perfection of his glory, the law will pass then only because the law will be enveloped by him and his glory and his splendor because we will see him clearly with unveiled faces and we will not need a basic description of him to understand him. That is when it will pass. So after speaking of his position after saying that he's both in it and then clarifying his position on it, Jesus then speaks in such a way as to reveal his authority over it and his position over the law. Now, as I read this, I'm going to go back to 18, and there's two phrases that are going to come up that we're going to hear it here, and then as we go forward in the next upcoming sermons, we're going to hear it over and over and over and over again. And it is expressions that reveal Jesus' authority. So find it if you can, otherwise just listen. Starting in 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Did you see it? 18, he says, for truly I say to you. And then 20, for I tell you. Jesus is teaching them. He is showing them that he himself has this authority that is necessary over the word of God, over the law, and the prophets. But what he's revealing in that phrase would have been heartbreaking to hear as they would be listening to Jesus, the, this passage, this section right now, the edge that was spoken of, the edge that it carries is a very real edge because Jesus is something, saying something here that is massive. He is saying they need a righteousness that exceeds, exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. Who were they? Some of you may know, some of you may not. Douglas Sean O'Donnell has a commentary called, the, um, it's a Matthew commentary from the Preaching the Word commentary series. And he writes the following. And this was the easiest, most succinct way I could find, thing I could find to explain the scribes and Pharisees. And he says, the scribes and the Pharisees were the super spiritual in Jesus' day. They were the ethically elite. The scribes were the Bible experts. They devoted their whole lives to reading, studying, and teaching the Bible. And the Pharisees, a word meaning separatists, I want to just make a note that John Calvin, in speaking of the Pharisees, refers to them as the expounders, that they would expound upon the law. But most people will talk of them as separatists, people who are keeping themselves as separate from the rest of the community and as separate from sin as they can. We're known for being separate from the common Jew. They not only knew God's law and sought to obey it, but they went overboard in obedience to it. These would have been seemingly the most righteous people in their society. If they were hearing this passage, as they would be hearing Jesus speak, they would be thinking in their heads, we can get an explanation later from the scribes and the Pharisees. They can help us to to understand this. Or if anyone would be carrying out what Jesus is talking about, it would be them in their minds. And here Jesus is saying, they are wrong. And what you need is a righteousness that exceeds their righteousness. What does that word exceed mean though? And what where are we getting to? And I think there's, there's two things you can see in this, what we can see about this righteousness that Jesus is calling for. I think he's saying 
Two things about it. One, the question is, does it mean a different type of righteousness? Is it different from the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes? Was that the one that they needed, that, they were, that we needed to pursue, one that was completely different from what they were doing? That would be like a qualitative exceeding, that not only are they not there, but they're wrong in where they are. Or does it mean a greater amount of righteousness than what they had? A quantitative difference that they were trying and they were trying to be righteous, but the bar was a little bit higher than they thought. So was it a qualitative or a quantitative problem? I just want to look at that a little bit more deeply, a little bit more. Um, Qualitative, I think it's important to note that they didn't do what they loved correctly, the scribes and Pharisees. They weren't known for pursuing this righteousness in the way that Christ would have them. They would focus on the letter of the law and not the spirit. So if they could find a way to manipulate the law, they would do it. That was their concern. Their tendency was towards show and display and not obedience from the heart. And so what would happen is there would be a qualitative problem with their righteousness because they would appear righteous, but in fact, they were hypocrites who would not be doing the very thing they would seek to teach or they would claim to love. And then quantitatively, they were what Jesus was calling out in verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. They would very specifically set up laws to overcome other laws so that they could tithe instead of helping their parents. Choosing something small so they could neglect something weighty and saying this is the way through. So quantitatively, their righteousness righteousness was no good at all. But from the people's perspective, they would not realize this. They would look upon them and they would say, here are a people who are doing it right. And so what is Jesus calling us towards? He's calling us towards both, I believe, a righteousness that is both qualitatively correct and flows out of the heart, but a righteousness that is also quantitatively correct and that exceeds what the scribes and Pharisees have, which should lead us to ask, are we any different from the rest of the crowd? Are we any different from that crowd? Is our position before the law in light, what is our position before the law in light of that necessary righteousness? And I just want to talk about in, on, and over for us in our position. Our position in, we are in condemnation. As, as, as goes the law, we can either be as righteous as the law requires, nor in the way Jesus emphasizes we are neither qualitatively or quantitatively righteous. With our position on the law, we are on track to not glorify God and rather continuously commit sins 
there an affront to his majesty. And we are overwhelmed. We can't, we can't do it. The crowd would look at this message. They would hear what Jesus is saying. They wouldn't have hope. They would not be hopeful from this message. They would hear what Jesus has taught and they would probably sigh. <sighs> there goes that idea. We are overwhelmed. And even the best of us are nowhere exceeding anyone else's righteousness, let alone the scribes and the Pharisees. Which leads us to the primary claim of this sermon and the part that I'm so excited to preach to you right now. Jesus' position in, on, and over the law reveals our need to be positioned in Christ in our life, on the law, and over the grave. Let me say that for you one more time. Jesus' position in, on, and over the law reveals our need to be positioned in Christ in our life, on the law, and over the grave. Let me start with my excitement. Friends, we must find our position in Christ. For us to get a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, one that is quantitatively greater and more righteous than what broken sinful man can accomplish, but also qualitatively greater in that it flows out from our hearts and not just based on external measures or actions, we need union with Christ. Union with Christ is a doctrine that simply means we are in Christ. Fully united to Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit by faith in the finished work of Christ in his holy obedient life, his perfect sacrificial death, and his glorious promise fulfilling resurrection. Union with Christ is attained by us when we believe in Jesus. We are then united to him. Another book, one I highly recommend and wish I would have discovered about more than seven days ago, I think it was only five, is a book called One with Christ by Marcus Peter Johnson. It is nearly impossible to find because for some reason Crossway doesn't list it the way that they should. But it is beautiful, Another great book about union with Christ is one called Union with Christ. Very hard to remember, but it's there. It's by a guy named Rankin Wilborn. You're going to forget that part. Rankin is a hard name, but Marcus Peter Johnson talks about union with Christ in this way, and it is a beautiful book, and here is a beautiful phrase. This is what he says. Union with Christ, as I use it in this book, is a collective phrase that is meant to encompass the astonishing number of terms, expressions, and images in the New Testament that refer to the oneness of the believer with Christ. To cite a few examples, this is an understatement, but to cite a few examples, believers individually and the church corporately are said to be possessors of eternal life in Christ, Romans 6.23, justified in Christ, 
8.1. Glorified in Christ, Romans 8.30, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Sanctified in Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.2. Called in Christ, verse 9. Made alive in Christ, 15.22 and Ephesians 2.5. Created anew in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Adopted as children of God in Christ, Galatians 3.26. Elected in Christ, Ephesians 1.4. And raised with Christ, Colossians 3.1. That is both where you are and who you are now by faith in Jesus. That is your position, your reality. And praise God that it does something to you. That isn't just like a legal standing, but it's an actual thing that happens within our hearts, that in Christ, we now have both the righteousness to enter the kingdom of heaven that is being spoken of in Matthew, but we have the heart and the power to grow in righteousness here on earth. We are in Christ, and that now shapes our position on the law. The law can be beautiful and pursuable. We're not going to read Psalm 19, but Psalm 19 can be a confounding psalm for us if we do not believe this. Because it speaks of loving the word, loving the law. Why well, we love the law, it condemns us. No, we love the law because we see it through Christ's eyes. And though the scribes and Pharisees mishandled the law, Jesus in us leads us to use the law properly from a place of both no condemnation by the law, quantitatively satisfied, but also a place of ability to properly use the law from the heart, qualitatively empowered, so that we, we can become a community where obedience and righteousness flows out of hearts, redeemed, renewed, and transformed by the power of the gospel. That here's what Christ is preaching from the mount. What we're going to hear the next few weeks about Jesus taking the law and in a way amplifying it and applying it to us, hears that and rejoices. Of course, I must not hate my neighbor. Of course, I must not lust. Of course, I must trust God for my provisions. Of course, I must not judge. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for showing me how I must now walk, but also for showing me how to walk. How could we do that? Christ in us. We have everything we need in him and through his presence in our local church. This will amazingly protect us from legalism. And I just want to bring that up because I think as we read a text like this and as we talk about the law, one of the things that's going to come to our minds really quickly is I thought we didn't need to use the law and I've experienced a lot of people using the law wrong and hurtfully. If you approach the law as Jesus would have you from a place of union with Christ, you will not be a nitpicker like a Pharisee and a scribe. You will not walk around looking at other people and saying, ooh, John Haynes. I thought I saw him over there. Your beard. Quarter inch too long, friend. 
I've got to get that tremors out. You're not going to be doing that kind of thing because what your heart's desire it will be is to see the love that Christ is preaching and pursue that love. And you may call out sin based on your knowledge of the law, but it will not be from a place of just picking like the Pharisees will. It will be from the same place that Jesus displays it throughout the whole of the Gospels. Lovingly embracing and pursuer sinners just like us. And then see, being in Christ assures our position over the grave. Union with Christ is one of the most practical doctrines we possess. In it, we know that we are fully secure in Christ by the Holy Spirit, that there is no condemnation for us. I'm running out of time, so I just want to give you a few applications. How do we use this heavenly doctrine to be of earthly good? Application one that I want you to use. It is simple. It's simple, but it's the hardest thing. Go to the Bible. Just go to the Bible. Spend time in communion with God. Maybe that's the better way to say it. Don't just pick this up. Don't just pick up your Bible and read. Commune with God. Spend time with God. Read and commune over the law and the prophets. Jesus is fulfilling them and see him doing that. Read the New Testament and learn more about your union with Christ. Be challenged by them. Be encouraged by them. And as you do, do that in a way that is communing, not just to check a box, not just to feel better of the fact that you did it. And then there's another step. This is where I falter so often. Talk with others about it. My, um, my oldest daughter has been using a devotional book. And my goodness, is that encouraging to a father. And she's writing, she's reading in the morning with my wife, Hannah. My wife, they'll, she'll read her Bible and Sadie will sit there and read her Bible and she'll write little things in her devotional book. And since we're parents, we can pry. And so we do. And we open and we see the things. And sometimes she wants to talk about them too. But more so, I can see that she is beginning that communion with God. And I want to note that Sadie is a special type of girl. And so do not feel any kind of condemnation if your children do not do this. Because for as much as she does that, she then screams in my face. So don't feel like we've <laughs> we got anything figured out in the Strubing household. It's a wild place. She's at home sick right now. And so I can say that without her being angry at me. But that is to say, share it. Share your communion with your family. Share it with your small group. Share it with your friends. Share it out of your life. Let it flow out of your life. Application two, obey out of your union with Christ. Let the law be beautiful to you and see it as he would, revealing a righteousness that God, revealing a righteous and loving God so that obedience can flow from your heart. Jesus doesn't want Pharisees or scribes. He doesn't. Don't look at this. Don't look at the Old Testament and say, you know who was a great person? The Pharisee and the scribe. Should be like them. No. He wants you to be like him. And the means to being like him is through this precious union. Then obey. And if it's hard, 
Talk with your small group. Admit the challenges. Seek counsel. Seek encouragement. Don't do it alone. Union with Christ means we're not alone. That we're not just united to Christ, but we're united to one another. It is not an individualistic doctrine. It is massive. Which is why it's so beautiful how we do membership. In application three, keep your eyes, your heart, and your words fixed homeward bound. I will say I have no greater joy than hearing my little girls sing and talk and pray about Jesus. It's, it's so wonderful. Even my youngest, my one-and-a-half-year-old, Felicity, she talks about Jesus. She calls him Gigi. And it's mostly because of a little play kids thing. But she, she knows to pray and sing. And in fact, she'll even sing versions of our hymns that we sing because she's learned them through bedtime. But one of the cutest things is my middle daughter, Adeline, will pray for Felicity at dinner time, Like she's a puppet. And it's great because she has this little tiny cute voice. And she prays. And that delights me. Not because it's funny, not because it's just adorable, but because it shows that we are discipling our children towards something, that we are discipling, discipling them towards a heaven reality, heavenly reality. And that is, I have no greater responsibility than that because I want them to know Jesus. I want them to know how he cares for them and will never let them go. And in everything I do, I want to glorify God so that they can see and know they can too as they're united to Christ through faith. And I don't want that reality just for my kids and my wife and my nieces and nephews and my brothers and my, my whole of my family. I want that reality to extend far and wide And union with Christ is going to guide us to keep our eyes fixed on heaven, not so we're not any earthly good, but so that we bear good. That as we suffer, as Danny was talking about last week, what they will see is salt and light. Not someone just complaining, but someone rather praising and reflecting God in the midst of hard times. I have a coworker who I don't like being called it, but I do. He refers to me as one of the good ones. And it makes me sad that there are a lot of bad ones that he would consider Christians. And I honestly, I do want to say, I think most of that is usually misinterpretation because I think a lot of things I believe would offend him really fast. But I want us to have relationships where people look at us, they see Christ flowing out of us and think, man, they're good ones. I think I could love the Jesus they love. Maybe I need to hear from them. I've often found myself working on the right things in the wrong ways in my life. Apparently, dentists teach kids nowadays that teeth aren't tools. Would have been a great lesson when I was a kid because I was using those things as tools. They're beaver teeth in here. Like we had to tear teeth out to make room for all the new guests. But they teach that as a lesson. And now kids get these wonderful tools. And so as we approach the law, Jesus is taking this right thing 
And as, as we go on to teach, he's taking this right thing and he's teaching us to use it in the right way. And he's teaching it to us in the right way. None of that happens without him. I really, I want to encourage you to learn and know union with Christ. It is one of the sweetest, most blessed doctrines that we have. In fact, if you would just, when we listen to the testimonies that, given, that are given, union with Christ is usually the fundamental change that will happen in people's life, is that they'll realize it. So many of the people are like, you know, I grew up in the church, everything was going well, I did some stuff, I talked about it, but one day, one day, I realized how much Christ loved me. That happens over and over in our testimonies, and every time, it just, ah, it just grabs my heart because I'm so filled with joy. And so I just beg of you today, treasure that union with Christ. And as we go forward into the next portion of our series where we get pretty law-heavy, and we talk about what the kingdom of heaven needs to look like and what the church needs to look like in its righteousness. Hear it not from a frame of, oh, we need to become new age Pharisees. Hear it from a frame of, we are empowered. We are made new in Christ. And now we can walk as he does.